Welcome to the Generative Biology Revolution, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. Generative biology is a revolutionary approach to drug discovery and development that leverages machine learning and AI to design novel protein therapeutics. It holds the potential to enhance the speed and efficiency of discovery. In this series, Ray Deshays, Senior Vice President at Amgen, discusses how generative biology is transforming drug discovery to make it more predictable, shorten timelines, and increase success rates of bringing life-saving medicines to patients who need them most. The ability to design proteins to perform desired functions will transform drug development. In particular, with AI and machine learning, scientists gain the ability to engineer antibody-based drugs, including multispecifics, which engage multiple targets. By altering existing protein structures or developing proteins de novo, Biologics of the future will become more specific and more effective than what we have today. In this episode, I talked to Suzanne Edivital, the Executive Director of Protein Engineering at Amgen. We will discuss how protein design affects drug development and success rates in the clinic today and in the future. Suzanne, it's really great to have you with us today. Can you start by telling me, how did you end up becoming a protein engineer? I like to think I began my love affair with proteins in graduate school. And this is where I found tools like x-ray crystallography, which allow us to study the structure of proteins. Proteins have this remarkable diversity from a very small number of building blocks. There's 20 amino acids that make up a protein, but they fold in vastly different shapes. And it's all of those different shapes that result in this diversity of function we see of proteins. It was really at that point in my scientific training that I got deeply interested in trying to understand how those shapes, how that structure, how that foldedness imparted different characteristics to the molecule. And I realized then I wanted to get into the pharmaceutical industry. My motivations there were a desire to take the thing I loved doing and use it to help patients. Part of my career in industry was doing structure-based drug design on the small molecule side. And through that process, I realized that the people who seemed to have the most fun were the chemists, the people making the molecules. And I knew I wanted to be a molecule maker. Now, because I'm a protein chemist and not a synthetic organic chemist, that meant I needed to make a transition to biologics. That's how I ended up switching over to large molecule discovery, taking all of the tools and training that I knew from my time doing structural biology of proteins, but now applying it to make proteins into drugs. Given that you've had your foot in the small molecule camp and the biologic camp, can you tell me a little bit about what are the different types of drugs that you could make that are based on proteins? We have peptides. I mean, these tend to be less than 50 amino acids. Insulin is probably the best known one of these drugs and often used to replace a peptide that exists naturally in people that is in a disease state missing or underproduced. There's enzyme replacement therapy used in individuals who typically for genetic reasons are deficient in a particular protein. We can supplement those proteins, can make them in a test tube and then give them to patients. 
And then we end up with antibodies who are designed to modulate the activity of a protein in the human body. We can have antibodies that block functional pathways. We can have antibodies which bind to a protein and clear it. Antibody-based drugs are very prevalent in the industry right now. Suzanne, can you tell us what makes antibodies so special and useful as drugs? Antibodies are quite large proteins, and they have a Y-shaped structure. And at the tips of the Y, we have a hypervariable region that is able to accommodate a whole variety of different sequences, which means it's able to accommodate a whole variety of different shapes. We can exploit that diversity in shape then to modulate or to bind to different types of proteins in the human body. Most other proteins, if you start making mutations to them to try and elicit a particular function, the whole protein falls apart. But with antibodies, we can make vast different combinations of sequences and achieve the shape, the structure that we want. Why are proteins and antibodies, in some cases, better drugs than, say, a small molecule like aspirin or acetaminophen or something like that? If you're assessing the drug ability of a molecule for small molecule intervention, you need a small place on the surface of the protein that your small molecule can bind. And many proteins have these, and that's why small molecule drugs are very popular and prevalent in the field, but not all proteins do. Anytime we want to modulate the activity of a protein and the surface is very large or very shallow, we run into a limitation on what small molecules can achieve just through molecular interaction. This is where large molecules shine. They're designed by nature to achieve protein-protein interactions in these large, shallow spaces on the surface of proteins. That's the good side of protein-based drugs. What are the limitations? Most small molecules can be formulated for oral delivery, so you can take them as a pill, whereas most large molecules have to either be injected subcutaneously or IV, which is a much more complicated delivery mechanism. They also have to be produced by cells. There's a lot of variability introduced by the fact that we're using a biological system to produce our drug, and it increases the complexity of manufacturing the molecule. It also means that the molecules have to be stored differently. They're not stable at room temperature, at elevated temperatures. Your pharmacist or your doctor's office has to have a freezer to keep them. Small molecules can just be formulated into a pill, packaged into a bottle, and shipped all over the world without incident. So somebody in a therapeutic area comes to you and says, gee, we want to make an antibody against this given protein because we think it'll be a good drug. What are the series of steps that you and your team go through to turn that idea into that protein-based drug. It is a fairly long process on the order of years for us to go from what you just described to a product. And the first step in the process is immunizing animals. We tend to use transgenic mice or rats for this. And these are animals that have been engineered to produce human antibodies. Following an immunization, tens of thousands of different antibodies will be screened for binding and functional properties, which result in hundreds to thousands of leads. Then the work really begins because we need to characterize those sequences not only for function, but also for a variety of physical and chemical properties, ensuring that it has all the biology we need the drug to have, but at the same time, we're able to make it into a manufacturable product. And this is where we end up spending a lot of resources trying to screen and understand the molecule's physical and chemical properties at an early stage. So protein engineering works to not only tailor that sequence to achieve the function, but also the stability that we'll need downstream for manufacturing. 
You've got your workflow for going from an idea to an antibody-based drug. Where do you see protein design fitting into that? The ability now to go in and use computational approaches. How do you see it solving some of the problems that you identified earlier? It's particularly challenging to characterize a number of the chemical and physical properties at the early stages in the discovery process. When we have a large number of candidates and the antibodies are present in very low quantities, low concentration, low levels of purity, because it takes us so long to get to that stage where we can start measuring these qualities, having the ability to better predict and design around them at the beginning would be hugely advantageous to us as an industry. Viscosity is one of those physical properties that's absolutely critical to a molecule's success in the clinic in terms of how we deliver the molecule through a syringe to patients. So when a molecule is highly viscous, something like honey, it's much more difficult to push that through a needle than when a molecule is not viscous like water, right? You can imagine the very different kind of patient experience that you would have if you were trying to inject yourself with honey as opposed to inject yourself with water. In order for us to understand a molecule's viscosity, we have to make large amounts of protein concentrated up to very high concentrations, which requires it to be very pure, and then physically measure viscosity. We measure viscosity at the end of a project, and oftentimes there are surprises. And so we lose molecules, we lose sequences at that very last stage which just increases the resource and time it takes us to have a molecule that can actually enter the clinic. So for this reason, we have devoted a lot of effort into trying to develop computational methods to predict viscosity. And in the last year, we actually have an algorithm that does this with fairly high fidelity. We deploy it right at the beginning of our engineering stage. So instead of having to wait all the way to the end, we can now predict which sequences will have high viscosity, which ones will have low viscosity, we can either deselect those sequences that we predict to have high viscosity or proactively engineer them at the beginning of our process so that at the end we have no surprises when it comes to viscosity. Do you see these computational in silico methods increasing the success rate with which we can bring a clinical candidate forward? When it comes to quality and success, I see a very strong place for these computational methods. We think about attributes like immunogenicity. This is the space that's just rife for innovation when it comes to computational methods to predict. Immunogenicity is one of those aspects of a molecule that's extremely difficult to characterize. It's extremely difficult to predict. You often don't know until you start dosing patients. Bringing to bear the full power of machine learning to take the totality of our clinical experience and use that to better predict which sequences are going to have less immunogenicity in the clinic will ultimately benefit patients, will ultimately benefit our ability to produce drugs that they're actually viable and have the functions we need them to. You described earlier how drug developers typically produce antibodies by immunizing animal models. This is a long and complicated process. What can we do to improve upon antibody drugs with our current computational methods? What would be interesting to me is to know, will we ever be able to make a fully in silico designed antibody that is as good as the one that come from immunizing animals? The physical chemical properties will be tackled much sooner than de novo design because the regions of the antibody, the business end, the tips of those Ys are these loop regions, which are very difficult for us to model. Part of what makes them remarkable is that they can adopt all of these different shapes. 
But that, of course, comes at a cost of flexibility, which is very difficult for us to predict and to model accurately using our current techniques. The whole structure of the molecule are actually playing a role in the shape in which those loops take. We really need a way to model those very small loops in terms of the entire structure of the molecule. I have optimism we're going to get there because we see papers coming every day talking about improvements in modeling protein-protein interactions. It's that foundation we see growing at an exponential rate. And I anticipate we're going to be at this place where de novo design of antibodies is a real possibility. And we can move from screening and vast experimentations to a place of designing molecules with purpose. You are in charge of running the biologics group at Amgen. In the past year, Amgen has done a couple of really interesting deals. First, the acquisition of TenioBio, and more recently, a partnership with Generate Biomedicines. Those are really designed to launch a strategy in generative biology. How is this impacting what your team does on a day-to-day basis And how do you see this changing how we develop protein-based drugs, including antibodies? So can you just walk us through that? The goal of generative biology at Amgen is to take our experience in high-throughput automation and protein engineering to combine it with machine learning and algorithm development to deliver complex multi-specifics medicines against a variety of diseases. And we haven't spoken much about multi-specifics, but that's where the field is headed. That's where we take protein, like antibody therapeutics, and instead of binding to a single target, we actually engineer them to bind to multiple targets at the same time. This is critical for modulating the biology The Tenio acquisition is a huge advancement in our ability to build these complex multi-specifics. The core of the Tenio technology is a transgenic rat, which is called the UniRat, that produces heavy chain only antibodies. Now, these do occur in nature. So llamas, alpacas, camels make these molecules, and they're more simple structures than what we see in people and rodents. Typically, the Y portion of an antibody consists of both a heavy and a light chain. So it's a heterodimer. In the unirats, we have heavy chain only. So we vastly simplified the molecular complexity of the molecules. Now we have a building block on which we can produce these multi-specific. You can think of multi-specific engineering like you're trying to build a house. An ideal house would be built with very solid bricks. And we know that antibody and antibody fragments are not those solid bricks that we'd like to build our house with. But heavy chain only antibodies are. They're extremely stable. They have ideal physical chemical properties and they allow us to put them together in such a way that we can not only get the biology we desire, but all all the physical chemical properties we need for manufacturing. How do you see that playing out in the next 10 years? What do you think your job will be like? Will it be different? The pace of science is tremendous, and it's a really fun time to be in this field. We are starting to learn these generalizable principles about multispecifics. So we're understanding which architectures we need to achieve specific kinds of biology. Instead of us having to relearn this rule every time on every molecule, which is a very resource-intensive process, we're now understanding that specific formats are able to do things like engage T-cells. We've learned the molecular geometry because we now know the rules and we can design the molecules from the beginning intentionally to have the properties we're looking for. As we start to see these 
immense advancements being made in protein-protein prediction algorithms. We're going to get even better at being able to look at the distribution of proteins we want to target on the surface of the cell and be able to design the architecture that we will need to achieve that biology. What would your one wish be for protein-based biologic drugs? Biologics have this exquisite specificity. They really largely do what we design them to do. And the next step is making them do what we want them to do where we want them to do it. Computational methods are what we're going to need to achieve that. Something I see coming much more rapidly is our ability to design molecules for manufacturing so that we spend less of our time working on having molecules with the right physical chemical properties, and then we can spend more of our time on the biology. And if we can have those computational methods in place so that is no longer something that requires a major investment of energy, I think we'll see these huge transformations happening in the biology side. So you've sketched out for us a future where there's going to be more computation involved in drug discovery and development for biologics. What's the implications of that for people who are contemplating a career in biologics for the future? What's going to be needed? What are the skills? What are the abilities? What should they be looking towards in terms of educating themselves so they will be primed to make major contributions in the future? What we really need are scientists to understand protein engineering and and how we do our work today, but are also competent in the space of data science and machine learning, hybrid individuals who can speak both languages. I understand how to engineer protein empirically. I understand how to design those experiments today, but that's not what we're going to need for the future because we know the kinds of data sets that are best suited for human learning are not the data sets best suited for machine learning to expand um, what we're able to do today and see this explosion and our ability to use these tools will come from scientists to really understand how to make data for machines instead of making data for people. Well, Suzanne, with this compelling vision that you've laid out today, I look forward to seeing what your team generates over the next decade as you are innovating and incorporating these new technologies. Thanks so much for joining us and educating us about the future of protein-based drugs. Thank you, Ray. It was a lot of fun. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this final episode of the Generative Biology Revolution. And thanks again to Suzanne Edivital, the Executive Director of Protein Engineering at Amgen. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the Generative Biology Q&A webinar discussion on July 20th, 2022. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. To learn about our next podcast series, Innovating Clinical Trials, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. 
Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.